Hi, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth. And this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. This week's guest is Jimmy DeSico, who co-founded Super Coffee with his two younger brothers as tired collegiate athletes in 2015. Today, Super Coffee is the fourth largest ready-to-drink coffee in the U.S. The brand has been named the fastest-growing food and beverage company in the country by Inc. Magazine and is recognized twice by Inc. as one of the best places to work. The DeSico brothers appeared on Shark Tank, made the Forbes Under 30 list in 2019, and were EY's Entrepreneurs of the Year in 2020. In this episode, we chat about Jimmy's startup story from his brother's dorm room to becoming one of the top beverage brands in the country. Jimmy emphasizes the importance of naive optimism, the influence of sports, and his athletic background on the culture and success of Super Coffee. We talk about his experience on Shark Tank, fundraising, the importance of positivity and motivation, the challenges of balancing growth with profitability, and the importance of celebrating achievements and fostering a positive culture in the workplace. It was so great to catch up with Jimmy. Keep listening to learn more. It's officially oatmeal season, and I'm so excited to share that you can find our Purely Elizabeth oatmeal products at select Walmart stores just in time to get cozy with a warming breakfast. You can find our blueberry flax oatmeal multi-packs and dark chocolate chunk oatmeal cups in the cereal aisle. Our gluten-free instant oatmeals are made with organic oats combined with five superfood grades and seeds for a delicious taste and texture. Our packs and cups make for an easy breakfast, snack, or dessert, and they're also perfect to take on the go. Click the store locator in the show notes to find a Walmart store near you. Happy oatmeal season and happy shopping. Jimmy, welcome to the podcast. Such a pleasure to spend the morning chatting with you today. Elizabeth, the pleasure is mine. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so let's start off with the beginning of Super Coffee. And first question, do you remember, I'm sure you do, where you were when you first heard the idea from your brother? Yeah, so I was graduating college up at Colgate University. It was like the big graduation weekend and my brother was there. I knew he was like working on something in his dorm room, but I thought it was like a class project. And he showed up with this little cooler. Uh, he had like these little stick on labels for these glass bottles that he made and he called it super coffee and it tasted pretty good. The formula was different back then. It tasted pretty good. And and uh, I was like, oh, this is cool. I'm, I'm, I was glad to see my little brother doing something outside of class and sports. So that was the first moment. That, w- that would have been May of 2015. And in that moment, was he like, hey, I've got a, this business idea or how was it presented to you? Um, and if it was a business idea, were you like, oh, this is you're onto something or? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't at that moment. I did not think it would turn into a business or what it is today. I I, I had a job lined up on Wall Street. I was going to go work for a Colgate guy in, in finance. And my brothers were all excited about this incubator program or accelerator that Georgetown offered where they were going to school. 
And uh, they they were like, yeah, we're going to do this program, this two or three month program. We got these academic advisors, these entrepreneurs and residents. I'm like, that's awesome. That sounds great. Like for me, I thought it was going to be a very cool summer exercise where they put together a business plan. You know, they they did presentations and mock pitches and things like that. It wasn't until August of that year that my brother called me and said, hey, I'm dropping out of school to start this coffee company. And I'm like, whoa, this went from a class <laughs> project to a, a big decision and really quick. And what year was he in school at that point? He just finished his freshman year heading into his sophomore year. Wow. Okay. So let's take a step back and also hear where did the idea for Super Coffee come for your brother? I think like most things, it was a, a solution for himself. You know, as a student athlete on campus, the only it was a Pepsi school. So the only energy drinks they had were Red Bull or Starbucks or Frappuccino. <laughs> yeah. And Frappuccino, like back then, bottled coffee wasn't for energy. It was indulgent. It was a midday treat, 46 grams of sugar, 300 calories. He's like, I'm tired. I need something that's going to give me energy. I want it to taste good and be good for me. So he turned to a blender in his dorm room and started making stuff. And, and it was all iterations on like bulletproof coffee with MCT oil and zero sugar and protein. He found something that worked for him and his teammates were excited about it. And, and that's how we got going. That's awesome. So he eventually in, in August calls you and says he's dropping out of college. And immediately, what did you think? I was like, oh, no, this is crazy. <laughs> and like sort of the big brother, like parental sort of genes in me came out. And I was like, I got to supervise this thing. You know, I, I just got to make sure that he's getting off on the right track. Like so. So initially, when I made the decision to join him and, and my younger brother, or my middle brother, Jake, who was still in school, Jake didn't drop out of school, but Jake sort of helped his entire senior year while Jordan fully dropped out. And I was like. I'm going to do this for six months max. You know, I'll, I'll help you raise money. I'll help you put together a true business plan, maybe get, help you get a contract manufacturer. And had you ever done any of those no, things? Or no, you, no. you were just like, I could be helpful. Yeah, I, I was like, I brother. could be helpful in, in sort of the arrogant big brother way. It's like, you guys don't know what you're doing. I'm going to come in here and, and make sure that this thing gets off on the right foot. And there was nothing strategic about us starting a, a bottled coffee company. Like I, I, we didn't know what a contract manufacturer was. Our mom works at the YMCA. Our dad is a construction worker. You know, like this was, there was, it wasn't like we had an uncle who was going to distribute us nationwide at Whole Foods from day one. So we definitely learned the hard way, the slow way, the, the expensive way. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I too went to my first expo East, not even knowing like what a distributor was, what a broke, like I knew nothing, you know, it was all foreign language, but I think you just figure it out. And I think being naive in the, especially in the beginning is so impactful because I think if you knew all the things it would probably limit you and that fear and that kind of more negative self self-talk would probably get in the way. So I, I do love how you guys as a brand very much about like, yes, and going after anything and everything. So curious to hear, like, what was that feeling for you guys in the beginning of being fearless? Yeah. And where did that come from? Yeah, I think it was naive optimism. We had the pleasure of reaching out to guys like Seth Goldman from Honest Tea and Ben Weiss from Buy and, and his president, Ken Kurtz over at Buy. They would all give us their time for 20 minutes, 30 minutes here and there, and we'd go put their advice to work. And some of the earliest advice Seth gave us was go inch wide, mile deep. If you're in one store, 
support that store with everything you got, right? It's all you got. So you might as well spend a lot of time there. And that mentality proved to be invaluable to us because this is an industry for, for you and for us that is all about velocity, right? Retailers need to see stuff that is not only unique and different, but it's selling once and people are coming back and buying it again and again. And, and beverage velocity is everything. So we said, look, we're not leaving this first store until we're the best selling bottle of coffee in that store. What was your first store? It was a Whole Foods in Georgetown. Uh, this was before Amazon owned Whole Foods. So you could kind of go yeah. store by store and convince like- That's how manager. I started too. Yeah, 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 you get it. And so he, this guy gave us a shot and he gave us four facings in this little cooler. And by the end of the first day, we we spread out to 12 facings, you know, we're there pouring samples, we're stocking shelves every day. And, and he loved it, but he was also kind of annoyed to see us in his store every day. But at the end of the day, he was like, look, you guys broke my store's weekly sales record in four hours. Like, I, I love you. Wow. I keep keep yeah. doing this. Obviously, that level of support is not that sustainable. But when all you have is one store, you might as well, you might as well do it. And we just did that store by store for the first year and a half. And, and we had a really strong data story that we were able to sell into Wegmans and expand into the Northeast. But that was that was the critical moment for like, we don't know much about this business. We just know we got to sell a lot of bottles of coffee. Yeah, totally. So curious, you mentioned raising money and certainly, I mean, CPG is very expensive. And I remember earlier on someone saying like, it's going to cost you a million dollars to get into Whole Foods nationally. And that advice was very accurate. And I'd imagine in beverage, it's that much more uh, resource intensive. So what was it like for you? You certainly, as you said, did not have prior experience raising money. What was it like for you originally raising money? And what were those lessons that you took? Yeah, I think early on, we learned that traditional food and beverage funds, like the VMGs of the world and the Excel foods of the world, like folks that have experience in this space, weren't interested in investing in like a pre-revenue cash burning bottled coffee business. You know, they, they're, they're, they provided the most scrutiny. And in fact, over the years, we've never raised from a traditional consumer fund. So in the early days, we, we sort of raised money from whoever had it and was willing to give it to us. You know, it, it was some of our college teammates, their parents were in big real estate businesses and we got in front of them. That was a six figure check. We met a guy, we were pouring samples at Whole Foods and, and my brother was wearing his Georgetown football hat. And the guy was like, oh, I went to Georgetown. I'm a lawyer here in DC. How can I be helpful to you? Like, well, we're raising wow. money. Like, do you know anybody that we we could do it? And the next week he had us in front of like five of his clients who were bankers and real estate folks and, and et cetera. That was a half a million dollars, right? And always what we did was we'd raise money, we'd go increase sales or we'd expand distribution or we'd launch a new product. And then we'd go back to the same investors first and foremost and say, look, we're doing everything we said we would. Can you help us get to the next phase? And they'd either introduce us to somebody else or create that brand momentum. But it was all very organic. And people call it dumb money. Like dumb money is, is somebody who doesn't come from the industry and, and can't really help you grow. I don't like that term, but I think it's money from people who can afford to give it to you. And, and it's up to us to surround ourselves with the right advisors, the right executives, the right team to help us go grow that once we actually have that money. So in the beginning, when you were first raising money... How early was that? And then, I mean, how much of a quote unquote track record had you had that? How much were these people investing because you guys were this like dynamic brother trio that people just loved and versus it like you're getting into this massive category, you're going up against Starbucks, like what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, 
it, it depends on who the group was, right? VMG would would say the latter, where they're like, you're going up against Starbucks, call us when you're profitable doing 100 million in sales, and we'll think about it, right? And then other people, it was in betting on the jockeys, right? They're like, wow, we love your energy. You're fresh out of school. You were all competitive athletes. You know, like we love that. We love the differentiation. People saw what we saw in terms of the world needs a healthy bottle of coffee because it doesn't exist. And oh, by the way, it's a $5 billion category. If we get 10% of this thing, like it's a $500 million revenue business. You know, if we get 5% of the thing, it's still $250 million, right? It was, it was a, a really big opportunity and just getting a very small slice seemed very achievable back then. So they saw the vision. They believed we were the guys to bring that to life and they bet on us to, to do it. It wasn't until year three, 2018, where we had some strong data stories, right? Like that we finally had a track record. We, we did what we said we'd do. We, we took that same Whole Foods approach at Wegmans, a hundred store chain up in the Northeast. And we became the number one bottle of coffee in Wegmans. We were like 40% of category sales at Wegmans. Wow. And our current CEO, a guy named Tyler Ricks, he saw that data and was like, how, how do I invest? You know, so he, he invested in us back then. We, we brought him on as a board member. And that was all because, look, at, if, if you guys do half of this, if half of what you're doing at Wegmans, if you could do that at Publix, at Meyer, at HEB, at Ralph's, like you have a very real exciting opportunity here. That's amazing. So you mentioned, you know, your athletic backgrounds and you certainly didn't have a career background that was helping you to like, I know this thing that I did in my, in my prior business to take into launching this, but you had your athletic background. And that I think plays so much into the ethos of being an entrepreneur and launching a company. So I'd love to hear how that manifested for you guys and really helped influence the culture and just your work ethic and and all the things that have helped to make the brand successful. Yeah, I think sports have really shaped us both as individuals and as teammates, right? And as individuals, there's a, there's got to be a fire inside, right? I, I played football, Jake played football, Jordan played basketball. But if I'm lining up across from a defender on the football field, it's me versus him, right? Like I have to want it more than that person. I have to go harder than like some animal instinct needs to take over in order for me to win that one-on-one matchup. And there's only so much shelf space in this game. So like there, you you need to have a bit of a fire, right? And, and, and be willing to outwork, out hustle other brands, other distributors, other competitors, things like that. So I think that was ingrained in us at an early age. Both, both of our parents were college athletes. And then the the second piece is teamwork, right? You, you can't do this alone. You're only as strong as your weakest link. You know, you need to make sacrifices. It's not about you. Like in a team sport like football, it's not about any one player. Like we care as much about the person making the assist as we do about the person scoring the goal. And that was also a big part of, of who we were as, as young athletes. And to your point, like we don't come from corporate culture. We don't have, we haven't worked at any other companies before. So the culture here at Super Coffee is kind of an extension of our personalities and the values that, that our parents instilled in us and not just our parents, but our coaches as well, you know, as well as I do, like a culture of a brand is a combination of the personalities of all the people who work there. And if you get enough people who are interested in the same things and same goals, you, you get a very clear culture out of that. Totally. And that must be so powerful too, having three of you at the helm of it to start, you know, having three 
I would imagine would just be like so dominating and and infectious, really. Yeah, it was a special story, you know, and and people liked that. They liked it was like really an American dream story, and and we get it all the time. Like, how do you work with your brothers? We would, I would. That was going to be my next question. Obviously, yeah, I, could, <laughs> I could never do it with my with my sister. And I think we're so close in age. Like today, I'm I'm thirty, yeah. Nick's twenty nine, George's twenty eight. So like we're best friends, but we were also rivals in the backyard growing up, you know. So there's a lot of trust built in. There's a lot of chemistry. At the end of the day, like we know that we all want what's best for the business, and if the business doesn't work out or if it's enormously successful, like we're still brothers and best friends. So that's a very unique benefit that we have. And I think, yeah, it, working with those guys has has really been a, a blessing. We had to overcome a lot of like the early emotional challenges. <laughs> like it, when we were kids, if I was like, hey, Jake, you're swinging the bat wrong. He'd be like, screw you. You don't know how to swing a bat. You suck. <laughs> and now I'm like, hey, man, I, I want to give you feedback on how you showed up in that meeting. He'd be like, okay, lay it on me. I know you're giving me feedback because you saw how I can improve. Like, But that came with time and very clear conversations of let's get our egos away. Let's get our emotions away. Let's coach each other up because it's important that we we, we do that. How did you learn to do that? Like, And I think as being an entrepreneur, it's all about the journey personally, not just professionally, right? It's how you're learning along the way. So we'd love to hear anything, any advice and in how you've learned, because I'm sure day one of the three of you working together, you weren't giving him feedback and at least not doing it like constructively in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. I think <laughs> in day one, it was definitely more like backyard baseball one-on-one. <laughs> That was tough. And, and we realized quickly that like we couldn't be fiery and emotional, especially once we hired people. But I think the, the big thing that we've always had is recognizing that we've never done this before and not being afraid to ask for help. So reaching out to the Seth Goldmans of the world uh, was was very helpful. And, and a lot of the people who have been successful and come before us saw their younger selves in us. So they're like, yeah, I'm happy to share 30 minutes with you guys. A lot of this was for free. No, we never really paid advisors. If, if people got equity in the company, it's because they invested. That's that's one piece of advice I'd give to, to anybody starting out is like, don't give away equity for advice. You know, I, I think there are very valuable people and advice is important. But if you're working 80 hours a week on this thing, like you should expect people to make bigger sacrifices with you if you're going to give them a chunk of your company. What was it like the first like Christmas that you guys came home? I mean, for the first year or two, mom and dad were still very helpful in terms of advice, right? Because it was all practical. Was be good people, work hard, you know. They gave very practical guidance along the way. Common sense. It was awesome. But everybody goes through this in their 20s where your parents sort of become your peers, right? And now like my mom is my best friend and not really my mom anymore. But in that process, like the business got so big and complicated and the business became very complex that my parents were like, we got nothing, you know, work hard to be nice to people. Like, <laughs> You're on your own. You what that contract should say. So funny. So as you went through growing the business, obviously you went on Shark Tank and had that experience. What would you say was the best and worst thing that came out of that? I think the best thing is I didn't realize how popular that show is. 
you know, the, the best thing is the brand awareness and the effect that it has on people. People are like, wow, you guys went on Shark Tank. You know, what what was that like? I watched that show. My son loves that show. You know, so it, it's really a ritual in a lot of American households. Yeah. So I think I underestimated the power of that show. And had you guys been contemplating for a while going on the show or? Well, there was a, like this weird stigma, right? I didn't want to be a Shark Tank brand, you know, and, and not that yeah. there's anything wrong with that. But it, it, at the time, it felt kind of gimmicky, you know, people kind of went on there like infomercially type stuff. So that was challenging. But you can imagine any demo we did at Whole Foods where it was more than one of us, people were like, you guys got to go on Shark Tank. This is great. Yeah, of course. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the the odds just aren't great. 40,000 companies apply every season and 100, to, 100 get picked to, to go film. Wow. And, but it wasn't until the, the summer of our second year where a producer reached out to us and said, hey, we heard about your story. You still got to go through the application process, which is 90 pages, 10 minute video, the whole deal. Uh, but we'll put your application on the top of the list. So basically, it's like you're not going to be one in 40,000. We'll actually read what you have to say. Um, so that was that was important. But the the second part of what was the, the worst thing about it Um I don't know. I think just from an ego perspective, like not getting a deal, like we didn't even get an offer, which in the end, it didn't matter, you know, and, and, but walking out of that show, we're like, dang, we just lost the national championship on, on television. You know, <laughs> this, this hurts. So that was disappointing for a minute. And then we turned it into something pretty good. And really utilizing that feedback to make any changes in the business. Yeah. Well, so that's one thing that people don't realize is like we, we filmed in June of 2017 and our episode didn't air until February of 2018. So a full eight months later. And on the episode, the sharks are like, I don't like the taste. I'm not sure about the packaging, blah, 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 blah. By the time the episode aired, we had a new and improved formula on the market. We had new labels on the market. Like we made a lot of changes and those changes were inevitable, whether the sharks told us that or not, you know, like sure. we create this product for Barbara Corcoran, but the, the feedback was valuable and, and we moved quickly to make improvements. Well, you've certainly come a long way from that Shark Tank till now and really have created this incredible brand size of business. And I think it's really interesting how you've taken an approach to to really talk about, I think, taste more in your product than like you have all these amazing benefits of MCT oil and and protein, but it's not in your face that, you know, someone who is a more conventional shopper might not, you know, be turned off from. So I'm curious to hear what your approach has really been in building the brand and scaling the brand and getting you to where you guys are today. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good, good question. So in the early days, we were very much on the side of functional and healthy, you know, on, on the front of our labels, it said super coffee, protein plus MCT oil. You know, we were leaning in heavy to medium chain triglycerides and the keto diet and, and good for brain health. And what we realized is that was a very small market. Like a, a big question we got is what is MCT oil? You know, why should I care about this? Why are there four grams of fat in here? Where does that come from? And I think with beverage, it is really, we need to be available in a hundred thousand stores to, to get to that critical mass. And of those hundred thousand, maybe 2000 of them are the whole food sprouts, like healthy Kroger type stores that, that people care about those ingredients. And those are early adopters. So they're going to they're gonna embrace it whether you're calling it out or not, right? Like the people who read the back of the label, they see monk fruit, they see MCT oil, they say, let's go, I'm, I'm with that. But 
in convenience stores and gas stations in the middle of the country, the moment you tell that shopper that it's 70 calories, zero sugar is the moment he says to himself, that's a diet product and it must not taste good. You know, like that dude wants full flavor, full energy. You know, he's not looking at the back of the label. So we actually, we just launched this, this super coffee extra. Oh, nice. Yeah. This is, this is for him. Uh, We call him Bubba. He is a (laughs) blue collar, middle of America, like backbone of our country. Uh, And this is still zero grams added sugar. It's half the calories of of a Java monster, but it's sweetened with sucralose. So a little bit out of the natural channel for us. And it uses real milk instead of protein, but it tastes like a freaking milkshake and it's still better for you. It gives you the energy and and this is what's going to work in that channel. So I guess long story short, like we've evolved from very functional forward messaging into more mainstream flavor, yet still better for you, still functional, but just a different type of approach to to marketing. I mean, I think that was really smart. And it's something that I think even like for us, we just did a rebrand this past year. And Prior to that, while we loved our packaging, it was like pretty clinical looking and didn't have that taste appeal. And now bringing on a photograph of the food and having that taste appeal, I think has made such a big difference. I'm curious to hear for you how making that change and and just reaching those consumers has been, what does that journey look like for you? I mean, how have you thought about like building community and what's really been that thing that has resonated most and really help you accelerate your growth. Yeah. And I wish it was one thing, you know, it's, it's, usually, it's a million, things. it's a million <laughs> things. Right. But I think showing the flavor first is important. Good, good flavor is table stakes without it. People don't care that you use mushroom adaptogens, right? They don't care about MCT. They don't care about any of that stuff. If it doesn't taste good, at least at scale, you know, at Erewhon, they care about that, but there's seven Erewhons in the country, you know, like they, for us, like we need to win at Walmart more than we win at Whole Foods. So I think flavor is, is critical. Um, I think differentiation is critical. Like every brand needs to answer the question, why will you succeed at first? Basically, what what makes you different from what exists? And for us, we're the zero sugar, low calorie option in the, the sweetened latte category. So we taste good. We're good for you. But then you still got to cut through the noise and, and the brand needs to mean something. And, and for us, it's positive energy, right? It's the energy that our products give you, but it's also this motivational sort of encouraging tone that the brand takes. Like if you have a job to do, grab a super coffee because it's going to help you get that job done. And that shows up in a variety of ways. We don't really own any platforms, you know, like we're not the official coffee of CrossFit or anything like that, but uh, we show up at Spartan races. We show up at local 5Ks and local marathons where people are trying, like we're not there for the folks who win the race. We're there for the folks who want to finish the race, yeah. you know? And and I think for, if, if we can be that, that tool that helps people get the job done, that's where we're going to focus and lean into in 2024. Nice. Well, I love that positivity aspect of the brand. And certainly that's probably coming back to the earlier part of the conversation, the culture and stemming from the three of your personalities of being positive and optimistic. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you managed to stay positive and optimistic on this journey and what's really helped you, especially when things are not so easy, which it's a roller coaster and it's not always easy. Yeah. 
So I think entrepreneurship is about energy, right? All the entrepreneurs I know, at least the ones who have been doing it a while, have more energy than than other people. And I think for me, like my energy, if my energy is waning any any particular day, I looked at both of my brothers and chances are one of them is is feeling good. You know, so I have that, like I have a good support system, a good team. And honestly, it's it's the basics. I it's got to be good diet. You know, I, I, I don't eat any added sugars or, or too many added sugars. I don't drink a lot of calories, like certainly no sodas, no Gatorades, things like that. So having a good diet that's high in protein, high in veggies, that that's important. Eight hours of sleep every night is sort of non-negotiable. A lot of nights it turns into seven hours, <laughs> but I think I can't, I can't do any less than seven. And, and that, that requires saying no to things like sorry, I'm not going out to dinner on a Wednesday night. You know, I'm not going out to to the bar on, on Friday. You know, I, there's, there's certain things like that, that I have to, to stay true to physical activity every day, whether it's a going for a walk, a run a 20 minutes in the garage. I think a lot of entrepreneurs who you and I both know are like, oh, I've been on the road. I don't have time to work out. It's like, come on, man. Everybody has 20 minutes. And you can, you can mess yourself up in 20 minutes. Like even at a, a crappy hotel gym, you could <laughs> crush yourself in 20 minutes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But that's that's it. I think taking care of those foundational things and then being social. Because when it gets hard, it's easy to turn inward and and just eat dinner at home by yourself or turn on Netflix and, and not talk to anybody. But you have to have to get out and inspired by those you care about. So I think being social has been important to me. I, I, I live with my girlfriend who's awesome. That's made a lot of difficult days better. So the, I guess my encouragement to everybody else is like, call your friends, you know, go out with them. If you're going to work out, work out with a buddy. If you're going to go for a walk, do it with a friend. Like that social piece is is a very important part of the foundation of of happy living. Absolutely. It can be easy just to say like the easiest thing is to go home and watch Netflix and tune it out, but having having that balance or not balance, but having that interaction with those relationships are so critical in the journey and having that support system really. Totally. And, and don't get me wrong. Like I, I have the Netflix nights every now and then. Oh, of course. <laughs> it can't be every night. <laughs> What's been some of the best advice that you've gotten from either mentors, you talked a lot about Seth, or investors, board members, what's really stuck with you the most? It's advice that we haven't always taken. And it's focused on one thing. I, I always get skeptical when I see CEOs of five different companies, right? Like I'm the founder yeah, of these like five crazy. things. Yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. Good for you. But like, I, I barely have enough time for, for super coffee. And at Super Coffee, we have a limited amount of resources. In 2021, we raised a big funding round. The plan was to, to grow very quickly, and we wanted to be a total coffee solution. So during the pandemic, we launched these K-Cups because at-home coffee consumption was a lot higher. Uh, we put vitamins and antioxidants in there. We got into ground coffee. We have a creamer line. We have canned line. We The total coffee solution was the Super Coffee brand in every part of the store where coffee or coffee-adjacent products were sold. And it was too far, too fast. You know, we we did not like we got we got the the bottled coffee business to I don't know forty million in sales back then, and we're like, wow, we we made it. It's time to own other categories, and we weren't even close. Like we did not have permission to be anywhere but bottled coffee, and it's so tempting. You know, like the the, the two fastest levers for growth are adding distribution and adding new products. You know, it's yeah. it's very difficult to increase velocity on your 
core products, especially core products that have been in some stores for four or five, six years. You know, so I think having that focus is critical. And when you think you're ready to move on to something else, you got at least two more years to go of developing that core brand. And same thing, even with the bottled coffee line, we got to a point last year where we had 12 flavors. Now we got into cinnamon roll and blueberry muffin and caramel waffle and our three best flavors, mocha, vanilla, caramel, right? Like the best selling bottle of coffee flavors anywhere. Uh, those are now what we're focused on again, because everything that we launched started cannibalizing the core business. So we were selling more bottled coffee just because we had more SKUs, but our buyers were pissed. They were like, hey, your velocity is coming down on these core line items. Is everything okay? And we're like, yeah, what do you mean? Sales are up. And so I, I think having that focus is critical. It's boring. It's hard. So hard. It's so hard. And it's it's where you got to live. Yeah, I think it's a constant battle. I feel like internally, you know, it's you want you want more products, you want new products, but sticking to that core is so critical. And I think in general for anyone, even not a CPG, but it's having focus in whatever it is that you're going after makes that thing that, that much more powerful, gives that much more energy to it. Totally. Yeah. What have been some of the hardest parts of scaling the business at this stage for you? I think managing stakeholders and stakeholders are employees, it's distributors, it's retailers, it's investors, because ultimately everybody wants the same thing. They want to grow and they want to be profitable. And those two things are not always like those two things are often at ends, right? Where growth depends on investment, that investment erodes profit. Uh, and investors who invested in us to see growth are now saying, why aren't we profitable? And to pull a lever, to pull the levers that get to profitability are super painful. You know, we've reduced our force. We've cut back on marketing spend. We've eliminated over 60% of the SKUs that we sold all to focus on getting to profitability and then having that sound foundation to get back to growth. I think we came up in a very interesting era where from like 2016 through 2021, it was grow, grow, grow. It's okay to lose money. Somebody will buy you if you get big enough, right? Yeah, grow it didn't matter. Didn't matter. Didn't matter, right? As long as you have a good brand, eventually you you get good gross margins and and Coca-Cola will figure out the rest. You know, like that is, I think, how a lot of people operate, especially when you read the headlines that body armor gets acquired by Coke or Celsius gets investment from Pepsi, you know, Uh, but those are the outliers and it's an all or nothing strategy. Meaning if that doesn't happen, if that doesn't happen, you run out of money, you're screwed. So now we're pivoting to a place where we control our own destiny. And that is the business will be profitable in 2024. You know, we can choose to invest. (laughs) Yeah. Thankfully. Right. And and think about that. My brother approached me with a can of coffee in May of 2015. Nine years later, we'll turn a profit. Right. And and that's an expensive freaking battle that not a lot of people are willing to sign up for both investors, entrepreneurs, executives, like it's a long, long time. So I think the, the lesson is, be slow and steady, or at least have a, a foundation that can make money. Like if you cut marketing, the business should s- survive, right? Or if you cut back on, on salespeople, you have a, a unit economic and a financial structure where you're making money. You shouldn't have to sell a hundred million cans before you see the first penny of profit. Right. Uh, and, and I think that is a painful lesson that we, we learned 
the hard way. But the good news is like the brand will endure. You know, we've we've gotten to a place where people are buying it, people are liking it. And now we just optimize the the operating expenses and we uh we should live to see another day of growth very soon here. Next next phase, it's like a 2.0 of the business, right? Yeah, it's like an all grown up. I got I got facial hair now, I'm losing my head hair, <laughs> like Jimmy 2.0. <laughs> Yeah. So what now in this Jimmy 2.0 phase, what brings you the most joy in the business? Honestly, like the ability to solve problems, you know, because problem solving requires creativity. And I always tell people like, this is super stressful. Like, you know, you know how hard this is, you know how stressful it is. And, And unless you do this, like you can admire folks, but you don't really have true empathy. And it's freaking hard when a distributor says, I'm dropping this skew because it's not turning fast enough or somebody quits to go work for a, another beverage company or like the, it, it's it's discouraging. It's challenging. Like if you miss your sales plan because whatever velocity wasn't there, you didn't pick up the distribution you thought like it was a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, pandemic. Exactly. Like people have just discounted that. They're like, what happened in 2020? What do you mean? What happened in 2020? Uh, and I think that that is challenging but i tell people all the time i'm grateful for the challenges i have I'm building a business in america with my brothers like we have amazing investors we're, we're trying to remove sugar from people's diets like it's all good so my stress is it's not like i'm stressed of where's my next meal coming from or am i going to make rent on my apartment like they're good problems to have um so i think keeping that mindset on like why am i actually feeling this stress is is important to to me finding joy yeah. I think a lot of that also is probably, you know, pressure that you're putting on yourself, right? You're like a high achieving individual and that all is an it probably speaking from experience an internal pressure that makes it that much more challenging. How do you deal with kind of that internal dialogue of guilt or self-doubt or just wanting to constantly be doing better. Yeah, it's you have to recognize that it's a blessing and a curse, right? Because it is what makes us great, but it's also what causes our greatest anxieties. And I think that that is it's a give and take, you know, like I wouldn't want to change a thing. I I've never really been complacent. I don't want to settle for status quo. I don't want to be okay with like the normal 9 to 5 type thing. And that drive also comes with anxieties of I'm not good enough. I'll never, we're never going to get there, you know? And, and so it is a, it's, it's a tricky balance. Um, but I think a lot of times the, that drive outweighs the sort of internal voices that are telling me otherwise. Yeah. I've been reading this manifesting book and so much of it is really like that positive self-talk and how much that inner dialogue we can be negative sometimes and really focusing on what you're saying internally to yourself and keeping that positive is so critical in every aspect. But in this instance, I was working on manifesting some things, but I think that inner dialogue is really key. Totally. Totally. Another thing, I don't know if you, you, you struggle with this, but you achieve something and then it's immediately on to the next thing, right? right. Like, we hit our sales goal or we got into Whole Foods or, or whatever it is. We closed the round. Now it's on to the next thing before you even acknowledge or celebrate it. And that is an endless cycle, right? There's always going to be a next thing. You could sell your business for a billion dollars 
and win the Super Bowl in the same day. And you're going to be looking for what comes next. So uh, somebody told me recently, like, make time for those celebrations, call them celebrations and celebrate, right? Like if we yeah. beat August sales goal, then we're going to have a Zoom call with the whole team. Everybody's going to pop a bottle. We're going to say, let's freaking go. It's the first month we beat all year. Great job, team. Rather than an email that goes out and says, we beat August. Now let's get ready for September. <laughs> you know, Totally. That's such a great tip. Um, curious to hear on that note, any other things from a cultural perspective that you do to make Super Coffee be a wonderful place to work and have that kind of spirit and positivity? Yeah, I think the, the first is an easy one that anybody can add on right now is is gratitude. And we any any team call or department call, like I, I lead our marketing function now. And on, on Monday mornings, we have a full team call. We end with 15 minutes of gratitude. Any marketing meeting we have, we end with five or 10 minutes of gratitude. And it's a shout out, right? It's Elizabeth, these new labels came out awesome. You crushed it. Let's freaking go, right? Or you 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 met the deadline, you know, and and that means a lot to the person saying it. Feels good to give gratitude, and even more for the person receiving it, because a lot of what we do is unseen or thankless work. So when somebody sees it, you're like, oh dang, what I do here matters. And then the the second piece is being crystal clear about our values, and you know our athletic background. I, I mentioned the importance of coaches. Our we capture our values in this like convenient acronym we call Coach Curious optimistic, ambitious, compassionate, and humble. And there's definitions behind each of those values, but we actually refer to each other as coach. So instead of me saying like, oh, hey girl, what's up? Or what's up, dude? How are you doing? It's what's up coach? Great work. Or like we start our emails with, hey coach. And we hold people accountable to those. Like even in our quarterly performance reviews, it's does this person live up to the coach values? Which ones? Where are they excelling? Where are they falling short of? Because culture is not just like, what you say you want your company to be like, it's also what you tolerate. So the moment that somebody violates one of those values is the moment there needs to be a consequence for that to show that it's it's not tolerated if somebody's not living up to these standards. I love that. Such a great tip. All right, we're going to move on to some rapid fire Q&A. Oh boy, let me have a sip of coffee. If you could have super coffee with anybody dead or alive, who would it be? Easy. Teddy Roosevelt, my favorite president ever. Three things that you're currently loving. It could be a TV show, a product. Okay, this is a this is a plug, but I didn't intend for it to be. After dinner every night, I have your original granola with a little bit of Three Wishes cereal and some Calafia almond milk. And that is like yeah. healthy indulgence. Love it. Were those the three things? I guess that was the triple. That was three, three in one bowl. That was an easy one. <laughs> three in one bowl. What do you want more of in your life? Free time. Favorite words to live by? Work hard and be nice to people. Love it. A favorite book or podcast for growth, personally or professionally? Pivot by Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher. They're very smart and they have great banter. It's a podcast. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple. It's uh, tech, politics. Um, it's it's good. Favorite super coffee moment? Um, I think closing our Series C in 2021 was a it was a big moment for me. It was it was a hard 
thing to do. Like, you know, at raising rounds, you're talking to dozens of investors and a lot of people turn you down. They don't reply back to your emails. So to get that term sheet, it's actually, it's like the first time I ever cried at Super Coffee. Oh. Called my, FaceTime my brothers. I was like, we did it. <laughs> and <laughs> that was just like the, the most visceral moment I've had. That's amazing. And did you celebrate and pop bottles? Yeah, we we went out. <laughs> that was a good one. And lastly, what is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey? Ooh. I think sleep, it, it starts with sleep. I was going to say fitness. I was going to say diet, but those things aren't as powerful as getting the right amount of sleep. And there used to be like in, in the first few years of super coffee, it was, was taking pride in working seven days a week, working late at night and early in the morning and like burning the candle at both ends. And I do think the culture has shifted. I don't know if this was a COVID thing, but like, I think generally we've moved away from hustle culture, which is good. Yeah, uh, sure. You shouldn't lose hustle. You shouldn't lose work ethic, but I think now it's cool to get eight hours of sleep, right? And now it's cool to, to prioritize health and wellness. Um, so sleep starts, everything starts with sleep. Any good tips that you have for getting that sleep? Like, are you, can you easily get eight hours or do you need to do some sort of routine in order to get that? Yeah. So this is, I'm negotiating against myself here. No coffee after 12 PM for me. Okay. And then I, I read before bed. So like get off my phone. There used to be a, a period of my life where I'm scrolling Instagram or I'm ripping emails, like literally right before I close my eyes. And now I'll read for, I try to read for 30 minutes, but oftentimes I only make it like 10 or 15 before I'm out. All right. And in closing, what is next for you and Super Coffee? So we're in the heart of 2024 planning. 2024 is a big year. This is a year where we, we've made it clear to the company we are going to be profitable full stop in 2024 and not a lot of profit like a break even i'd be happy if we had a dollar of profit at the end of the year yeah. we'll, we'll invest everything back into growth. you're no longer a nonprofit. <laughs> exactly right we're not a charity anymore somebody said to me the other day they're like how much money have you lost and i was like 50 don't even want to tell you yeah right and they're like how much money do you think your partners have lost meaning your your suppliers and your manufacturers He's like, let me tell you, they're up $50 million. I'm like, shit, you're right. You know, like, so net will be profitable next year and we will grow next year. So delivering both of those things and proving that those two things can happen, uh, can coexist in part of a food and beverage startup. Uh, so that's what I look forward to. Awesome. You're manifesting it, that positive attitude. Let's go. Speaking the truth. Jimmy, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Where can everybody find you and Super Coffee? Yeah, I think Instagram is probably the best spot uh, at Drink Super Coffee, at Jimmy DeSico5, and then uh, pretty active on LinkedIn as well. Wonderful. Thanks so much for being here today. Elizabeth, thank you. See you again soon. Bye. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.